You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether they're some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. I don't know how old you were when you started hearing uh, that the earth is you know, mother earth or that you shouldn't litter or, um, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn up and who cares. Uh, but as a, a youngster, I was, um, Saturday morning cartoons were a fixture for me. And so part of Saturday morning cartoons, or at least part of cartoon life, maybe it wasn't all Saturday morning was Woodsy the owl and these announcements about don't, don't litter. And then, uh, you had the, um, the man who represented a native American who would go stand next to a polluted river and a single tear would be tracing down his cheek. Uh, later, you know, in adulthood, I found out that he's just an actor dude. Um, but regardless, the imagery was there and, uh, the idea that, that it's important to keep the earth in some kind of clean condition and that random littering is not good. And wholesale pollution is even worse. Uh, and so you had, you know, smog counts and you had, uh, pictures of the sky and, you know, in sunlight couldn't get through the fog and the nastiness. 
And so there was a Clean Air Act. And so uh, companies had to clean up the way that they were doing. And smokestacks had to have a, a restrictions on emissions. And cars began to get catalytic converters and all these kinds of things. And over the course of uh, 10 or 20 years or more, uh, you can have comparative pictures from, say, 1970 in New York City versus 1990 or 2010 in New York City. Uh, and it is a world of difference. And there's constant conversation about the amount of pollution being emitted by uh, growing company, countries like India and uh, mass produ- production companies like China. And uh, wh- what is their responsibility? What is our responsibility as Americans? What is our responsibility as individuals toward uh, the care of the earth? And so I grew up in a tradition that uh, I'll talk about with my guest that didn't really put a lot of emphasis on that. Now, I was uh, I absorbed from culture and I absorbed from my seventh grade math teacher, Mr. Howard, who uh, once said in class that he would never even throw as something as small as a gum wrapper out the window because he believed it was wrong to litter. Uh, and so I absorbed from those around me that uh, that there was this need to take care of the earth uh, without uh, absorbing any, any kind of you know underlying philosophy from them at all. So, um, but, but my theological side, my theological training, my church life, I did not uh, embrace or emphasize any of this kind of talk. So we grew up in a an environment where everything was going to burn up. The end of the world uh, was coming, not in the uh, in the sense that we were all going to get hit by a meteorite and be destroyed, but that the end of this normal course of life was coming to an end. There was going to be a tribulation and things were going to get bad. The Antichrist was going to show up. Uh, and then Jesus was going to come back and destroy everything. And then there was going to be a this dramatic some kind of uh, destruction of the heavens and the earth. And then there'd be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we weren't really given any reason to care about what happened to forests and what cared about what happened to streams and what cared about what happened to oceans and those kinds of things. There wasn't any real theology of the animal kingdom and how animals should be treated and whether there was a right and a wrong way, whether there was ethics involved or morals involved. And I'm not saying nobody was thinking of those things, but certainly in the stream that I grew up in, uh, that was the lesser amount of the conversation that took place. So uh, I'm really happy to drop this episode on Earth Day, uh, April 21st, 2020, and I hope that you will enjoy my conversation with Spence Spencer. Spence Spencer, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks for having me, Marty. So um, you and I, I think, met online, maybe probably on Twitter. I mean, did we did we know each other or did we interact back in just regular blogging days or has it been with the advent of social media? It's just been uh, social media. I joined the blogosphere rather late. Oh, OK, very cool. You, you have a good blog, though, uh, that I'll point people to in the uh, in the comments of our uh, episode. Uh, so Spence Spencer is a senior research fellow for the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. He earned his Ph.D. in theological studies with a Christian ethics emphasis uh, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the editor of The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis. He's an adjunct prof at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and an instructor at a commercial power plant. Um, today, the, the day this episode is supposed to drop, the scheduling, is Earth Day. So I guess this is like April 21st. Is that right? That's right. So um, you reached out and asked if uh, if this would be a good subject and could we talk about it. And honestly, before you uh, did that, it wasn't even on my radar screen at all. So I'm glad that you did. Um, so give a little background about what Earth Day is, why 
why a Christian, for instance, should be interested in it at all, because certainly it's one of those pagan holidays that we should all get naked and dance around trees or something. Um, so, so what are you advocating for here, Mr. Crazy Pantheist Man? Well, uh, th- that's a very good question. And for a lot of people, Earth Day does have a lot of pagan connotations to it because environmentalism or concern for the environment more broadly uh, uh, is often pitched in very pagan tones. Um, but when you look back in the U.S. at the history of environmentalism, uh, back in the 19, uh, early 1970s, uh, the Earth Day was actually a bipartisan uh, kind of lower end political uh, issue uh, where, you know, you had Republicans and Democrats that got together, sponsored uh, this celebration, which was really uh, designed to raise awareness to major pollution issues uh, of that day. Uh, because when you look at, you know, early 1970s, uh, 1967, you had the, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio that was burning. Mm-hmm. Famously, it wasn't the, wasn't the first time it had burned. Um, and it wasn't the first river to burn, but that kind of thing was getting a lot of attention. You mm-hmm. also had, um, since the 1960s, uh, Rachel Carson writing about DDT and promoting, uh, a more cautious approach to the use of, uh, of, uh, pesticides. Is that Silent Spring? Um, Silent Spring is her most significant work okay. on that, but she's, re- she wrote several other pieces. Okay. Yet Jane Goodall, uh, was coming into the public sphere, uh, and a lot of public interest at that time talking about the, um, habitat depletion for chimpanzees mm-hmm. and other, um, large primates. And so you had what was beginning to be a really earth conscious, uh, movement. And so, uh, these um, representatives and senators got together. They sponsored it, uh, and it was it was at the beginning um, not pitched as primarily religious. It was more concerned with uh, kind of the common good. Mm-hmm. Now, now what happened, as with so many things, is that uh, political issues got tagged onto that. And so one of the things that in the U.S. has always been tied and really globally in, in the modern era tied to environmentalism is population control. Okay. So so in the late 1960s, Paul Ehrlich published his book, The Population Bomb, uh, in which he predicted by now that we would have turned the entire globe into a desert based on just sheer resource usage. Is he still alive um, to see the uh, calamitous failure of his prophecy? Uh, I think he is. I the last time I looked was was uh, four or five years ago, and he was, mm. uh, and he had actually lost a bet on that. He had another. Oh, uh, word. I think I remember reading about that. Yes, yes. Yep. He and another scientist made a bet, and uh, and the the non pessimist uh, turned out to be right. <laughs> But his 1967 book then kind of inspired a whole movement. So you actually had Richard Nixon in 1970 who who sponsored uh, what's called the Rockefeller Commission. And so they sat down and looked at uh, population and the future of of, uh, the American uh, prosperity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they came back in that it was it had a strong environmentalist element to it. They were concerned about. Uh, resources and cleanliness and all those sorts of things, a lot of good questions in there. But one of the things that came back with was a chapter that was specifically dedicated to government-funded population control. Specifically at the time, this is pre-Roe v. Wade, Mm -hmm. the um, advocacy for abortion and spreading or or broadening access to abortion 
because uh, it was all state controlled at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, contraceptives to be state funded and state distributed. Um, so, it, you know, at that point, I, I look at that issue as as one of the major watershed moments in American environmentalism, where it turned from a common cause issue into a right left uh, conservative progressive pro-life uh you know not so pro-life however you want to describe it really divisive issue Mm -hmm. which has led us to where we are today so so this has a uh there's a definite political uh connection but had had evangelicals for instance uh already had a position in the environmental movement did they have or were there uh statements that they had issued or anything like that uh that would have aligned themselves with what was happening politically, or was this like evangelicals were way over on one side, uh, the country is way over on the other side, and there wasn't any commonality to begin with? Well, so the Southern Baptists issued at least two statements in the 1960s, uh, resolutions that were approved on the floor. Now, take that for what it's worth, because that was uh, about the time that the conservative resurgence was beginning to, to foment. Um, but they they issued concern about the environment uh, in a couple of resolutions back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see what was generally so the the um, the religious right hadn't coalesced at that point. Uh, and so it, it was pretty wide open uh, and churches recognized, I think, uh, that this was a generally common cause, common good type issue mm-hmm. and hadn't hadn't pitched against it. Uh, I don't know that it had raised to the level of concern uh, socially that it has quite today. But but you do have people like um, uh, Francis Schaeffer, mm-hmm. who, you know, his, his book in 1970, The Pollution of the Death of Man, is still, I think, the clearest uh, evangelical theological argument for environmental ethics on the market. So I remember, I mean, even as a kid, so I would have been uh, in my childhood through teenage years in the 70s, if you take it from 70 to 79. Um, and I can remember even as a kid having conversations about, uh, you know, whether it was good to throw, you know, a gum wrapper out the window or whether it was good to throw your Burger King bag out the window or cigarette butts littering the sidewalks and those kinds of things. So there was, and, and we were from a, uh, you know, deep South, very conservative church, very conservative theology. Uh, but even we had a, a realization, uh, to some degree, I don't, I don't know that it was well fleshed out theologically, but we did have a realization, at least to some degree, that we shouldn't pollute just because we can pollute, uh, that we should have an awareness that this is God's world and we should have some part of taking care of it. Uh, did there come a point where the Christian view of environmentalism, or at least a, a, a more Christian view of environmentalism and kind of this uh, political secular view of environmentalism um, split beyond the fact that environmentalism began to kind of uh, approach uh, the abortion thing positively? Was there another split or was that like the wedge that caused us to kind of go in different directions? I think that's a big piece of the wedge, you know, at that moment where it it drifted. And and what what I see developing when I read through uh, the history of environmental ethics is really a a reactionary uh, drift or reactionary element to a lot of theology dealing with it. Because so in again in 1967 and all like there's a six or seven year period in the modern era where uh, 
where a lot of things happened that I think ha- explain a lot of where we are. But in, in 67, uh, Lynn White uh, Jr., who, who's a historian, he, mm-hmm. he writes about technology. His most famous theory has is, is actually been mul- debunked multiple times, mm-hmm. which is that the stirrup shaped all of Western, uh, modern Western society. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, but he wrote an essay, and, and it was um, it was an after conference, after dinner talk uh, on the historical roots of our ecological crisis. So he pre- uh, presented that, and it got published in Science Magazine, uh, and so broadly distributed. Uh, and basically, he said that there's that Christianity is fundamentally dualist. And that the solution is for them to return or to take in a pagan element of pantheism. So that's a big piece of what Schaefer wrote about. And then Schaefer was actually writing it in response to two essays. Uh, One was by a man named Means, uh, who uh, was uh, from uh, Western Michigan University. And and, uh, actually, he just died a few years ago. Uh, But anyway, his whole thing was about restoring pantheism, he thought, to Christianity because he thought that was the original roots of it. And so what you have at that point is that people on the what we would now call the left began to argue for changing Christianity. So there's a liberalization for the sake of the environment in addition to all these other social justice uh, kind of things like – you know, you know, but there there has to be a fundamental change to the nature of Christianity, mm. and then what you have is a reaction against that. I can't even and imagine. So, yeah, mo- more conservative people instead of saying, "Is there something that they say that's correct that we should work with?" and say, "No, we don't need to change Christianity, and we still need to be for the environment." Instead, they began to say that environmentalism. Uh, that uh, that's just pantheism, that's paganism, and we won't don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, m- there's more of that that happens through the 70s, and in the 80s you see some more people. Uh, ref- there's some reformed thinkers uh, uh, that start to write. Uh, Lauren Wilkinson's one of them, uh, positively about the environment and saying, "Hey, we need to engage positively here. Uh, this is." You know, the creation has value. It's God's world, but it also has it has value mm. uh, not just because we're humans and we need it, but also because God created it, and therefore we should be working to to restore it, just as we anticipate God's going to fully restore it. So that really kicks off in the eighties, and then and then moves on. Um, the idea of restoration, uh, to be honest, it is new uh, newer to me than other uh, theological positions that I've held over the years because in my stream growing up, there was very little, uh, the new heavens and the new earth were totally, uh, different creations. Everything that we know now, you know, was going to be consumed in fire and burned to, uh, you know, some kind of ash that wouldn't, wouldn't survive, uh, God's fiery gaze. And then he was going to redo everything. So we wouldn't, you know, everything is brand new for brand new creation. And the idea of restoring what he had created or renovating what he had created in the new heavens and the new earth being a renovated uh, situation rather than a brand new situation what didn't even come into my thinking until I was well into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a paradigm that uh, it was all going to be basically, uh, even though we didn't, we weren't kind of taught not to litter. It was like, it, it really doesn't matter anyway, because it's all going to burn. That was really the catchphrase. It's all going to burn. Um, 
so I didn't restoration wasn't something that I worked with. It wasn't in my, my thinking. So when, when did this, uh, or was it always there and it just wasn't part of my stream that, uh, that there is a reason to be environmentally conscious. Uh, there's a reason to want to conserve. Uh, and that is a reflection of the gospel emphasis. Not, it's not the gospel. It's not the way to salvation, but mm-hmm. It is a reflection of what happens when we have a view of what God is doing in the world and that we can actually bear witness to God's activity in the world by being environmentally conscious. Is that a recent development or has that been here all along and I just wasn't aware of it? Well, I mean, when you look back, uh, the trajectory of interpretation of of that passage in Second Peter um, uh, has been pretty uh, until the KJV uh, has been with kind of a restorationist emphasis to it. Um, and uh, when you look at some of the ancient commentaries, uh, even prior to, but, but Luther and Calvin even ha- understand that passage, um, the, uh, to, to be talking about not a complete destruction with a, a new, entirely brandy new total recreation, mm-hmm. but actually a purging and a, and a restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, when you go back to early church thinkers, they didn't ask the question the same way because eschatology has been one of those things that, that it has been a lot more emphasized uh, much later in Christian history than sure. it was earlier on. I mean, you know, when you're trying to hammer out the nature of God and the Trinity, uh, the the exact fate of the earth isn't the primary question you're working right. on. <laughs> um, but what you do is do see is an ex- expectation of of more of a continuity than discontinuity mm-hmm. uh, in in early church commentaries. Um, not universally so, because if there's anything you know, that we can learn about reading uh, early church. Uh, theologians is that they didn't agree on a whole lot, yeah. uh, but they did get, they did agree on some some very important things. Um, but when you when you look at that passage in Second Peter in, or Second uh, Peter three in particular, uh, you see there's more modern discussion of it having a restorationist element to it. But being Baptists, we come from a stream that has uh, some often dispensationalist roots. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least connections. And I grew up in a very dispensationalist mindset. Yeah. And so I, I had the, it's all going to burn up mentality too. Same. Um, which I, I don't, I, I think there's actually a, a textual difficulty in second. Uh, there is a textual difficulty. I think that in, uh, in second Peter three, that it resolves toward a continu- uh, more continuity than anything else. But when you look at the whole theme of scripture, it seems more to be, pointing toward uh, renewal and restoration. When you look at the work of Christ, what did Christ do uh, when he did his miracles? He pushed back the effects of the curse mm-hmm. regularly. He healed people. The only exception that you have to that is potentially the uh, the fig tree, uh, where he right. cursed the fig tree. Uh, every, but I think that was restorative spiritually, even if it wasn't restorative physically. But it's always kind of that pushing back the curse. When you look at Romans 8, when Paul's talking about the groaning of creation and how it longs to be set free mm-hmm. from the bondage that it was subjected to, uh, I think that's—I think he's thinking back to Genesis 3 with the fall, mm-hmm. that it's going to be lifting of the fall. And that setting free, I think, implies more of a continuity than discontinuity. Uh, this is Marty Duran. I'm talking to Spence Spencer about environmentalism, especially from kind of a Christian perspective. Uh, so we'll be right back after this. 
So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. Uh, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot. And uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally, I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Okay, so Romans chapter 8, you just mentioned, uh, having to do with the entirety of creation is groaning uh, under the weight of sin. I, I think this is actually one of the verses that began to uh, rearrange my theology on uh, creation care. That's the kind of catch-all phrase that I use. Um, because the the earth itself is under a curse. And mm -hmm. um, if if I have been redeemed, but the earth has not yet been redeemed, then I should treat the earth in a way that reflects my redemption until the time that it is redeemed. Um, and so that was like one of those paradigm exploding uh, concepts that came uh, to me, um, as well as the ability to bear witness to the future by the way that we behave in the present. And I think that is an ideal that has mostly been lost, uh, at least in the, the North American or the American context, mm -hmm. that we can actually bear witness to the gospel by our creation care rather than uh, succumbing to pantheism or uh, atheism or Darwinism or whatever uh, on the other side, be uh, getting lumped in. So what can, um, what should evangelical, mostly conservative type Christians realize um, about a scriptural approach to creation care? Well, first of all, I think we need to realize that it's a, it is a, key element to our social witness. Uh, as we engage people with the gospel and we talk about uh, the goodness of God's kingdom, uh, how we live uh, in every way, but I think particularly in, in the way we steward the, the physical resources around us, shows what we believe about the goodness of God and his creation. Mm -hmm. uh, if we do believe that we are just stewards of creation, which I've not heard anybody uh, disagree with that's that's a uh, an orthodox Christian. Uh, so if we do believe that we're just stewards of cre creation, then we we view that as a we're holding it in trust. Uh, and so we need to make sure that you know when when the master comes back that we're ready to present him something uh, that we're proud of that mm -hmm. we haven't we haven't used it all up 
uh, that we haven't mistreated it, uh, and then we, uh, we've uh, used it in a way that glorifies him. It also, like we talked about, it, it, the way we treat physical bodies, the way we treat uh, the, the land around us uh, shows that we care for what God has given us in particular. So it's a way of loving the creator as we physically demonstrate that. Um, so one of the things that distinguished early Christians from the pagans around them in, in the Roman Empire was the fact that they uh, took care of bodies. Mm. Uh, they didn't burn them. They buried them, which is another side topic all in and of itself. Sure. But that was a manifestation of the expectation of a physical resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that we treat creation shows people that, hey, we anticipate that there's more to this life. And even if we don't, uh, there's a strong element of neighbor love buried in uh, with the uh, the creation care emphasis. So, for example, um, you know, we may argue that we we want to use all the, the oil reserves, right, that that's a good thing and that we want to – God's given us that and so we want to use it. But at the same time, we would also think about it and say – well, I don't want to use it at a faster rate to deprive future generations Mm -hmm. of the access to what is, you know, a pretty powerful uh, fuel source. So even even that viewpoint tends to lend itself toward uh, an expectation of a minimal or reasonable use uh, of resources, which is exactly what creation care ought to be. Does this mean we have to like embrace full on agrarianism? Do we, do we all have to be Wendell Berry and move back to our, you know, our parents farmland and, and live in a house and farm the land and, um, as if living in a house is a problem, uh, you know, and have well water. And, uh, I mean, is, is that it? Do we all have to become Joel Salatin? Do we all have to, you know, have chickens and hogs and, and all that kind of thing? Uh, or is there some balance or are they just bearing witness to a, uh, a greater commitment to these ideals that not everyone will live up to. Maybe they're like a, um, they're a goal, for instance, but not everybody's going to reach it. But they point us in a direction that is good overall for Christians to be looking at. Is there a balance there? How do you see that? Well, you know, uh, so both of those are really good examples of people that have thought pretty well about the the inherent order in the created order. That, that there is something reflective in the reflected in the world around us about the nature of God. And so living in a way that respects nature and seeks the integrity of nature is a way that you can glorify God. So in that sense, they're bearing witness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that you – so everybody can't live that way. Yeah, uh, That's just not a practical – I tried. Uh, I tried to have a garden, dude. I'm going to be dead. I'll be buried in the agrarianism if I if I have to raise all my own food. That's right. So and and but that's not everybody's vocation. So Joel Sal- Salatin's vo- vocation is to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wendell Berry's kind of split his between you know poet, novelist, and uh, and uh, farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what everybody can do. But at the same time, uh, understanding that the way that we get our food matters, uh, which is kind of the message that Salatin sends pretty regularly, right. is, is, is very important. And that's going to cause us to ask some questions about the containment farming uh, and, you know, and, and ask questions beyond the cellophane. Uh, what happened to this meat uh, before it got turned into right. a nice juicy steak? You know, was it, was it living in a way that isn't the way that God designed uh, a a, a cow to live. Mm-hmm. And those are important questions that are going to have probably some impact on our pocketbook. 
um, but that we do need to ask. So we can't stop at uh, – the, the, one of the problems that, that anytime you bring this up, I grew up in a farming community. Uh, so one of the things that happens is you start to bring up questions about animal care and farmers typically really love their animals and take care of them right. individually. And it's not a lack of concern on a regular basis for, for particularly small time farmers that have a herd of, you know, 40, 50 cows mm-hmm. or, or whatever uh, that they're, they're working on. The bigger concern are some of these um, larger containment farming where, where they're not allowing uh cattle the chance to roam quarantine uh, farming brother that's what it is that's right yeah yeah and and you've got to do by the time you have to give so many antibiotics and growth hormones and and stimulation that just seems uh now just to be endemic within a lot of our our food industry Mm -hmm. that certainly does reduce the cost but it has a financial cost but it has costs in other ways right and and what Barry and Salatin are asking us to do, I think, is to ask questions beyond the price tag of our food uh, and our homes and our land and that sort of thing and, and begin to say, uh, what are the environmental impacts of, of containment farming? Uh, that's one of the things Salatin brings up is that uh, the reason why pig farms stink and uh, large-scale cattle farms or feedlots mm-hmm. stink is because the – refuse the the poop was designed to get dispersed right uh, while they're grazing and and moving it from place to place and I, I think there's something to that so rather than try and overcome nature uh why are we not trying to see what the pattern is that nature has given us and try and efficiently use that do you see in any of the um kind of back to earth uh, the small farm movement for lack of a better term uh, where you do have some folks that are, uh, like we buy almost all of our meat, uh, or as much as we can, let me say it that way. We buy as much of our meat as we can from a farmer who, uh, comes to the market not far from where we live. Uh, and we buy during the summertime, especially as much produce as we can from the farmer's market that's local to us. So all these are, uh, market or farmers of various sizes. Uh, some of them, it's just them and their family. Some of them, it's, you know, they have mm-hmm. other, you know, farms that they're helping with and those kinds of things. Um, do you see in any of that, uh, any like, uh, emerging Christian participation or evangelical participation where, uh, it's a, there's a theological emphasis or there's a theological basis for people saying, I'm going to stop my job doing XYZ or I lost my job doing XYZ. So I'm going to start farming as a means to, uh, demonstrate, you know, what, how I trust God or how I want to reflect his glory, uh, in working, uh, on a farm and, produ- and producing good food for people to be able to eat. Or is most of that movement still uh, more from the um, irreligious uh, who are participating more from the Earth Day uh, as it has kind of become framework? Um, so I don't have a lot of data on that, but you know, uh, reading uh, Rodrier's uh, Crunchy Cons, which came out in what two thousand six, um, one of the things he highlights is that he was surprised uh, when he started doing research on. Um, you know, uh, farming, small scale farming and uh, some of these back to the earth movements, how many conservative Christians um, now his definitions of, of conservative Christians, he's Orthodox now. Uh, so he's going to include that and Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it's a little broader scope. So I don't know that it's exactly uh, Catholic, but he, he noted that as a growing trend, you also see it in um, 
Uh, there's a book, Better Off, that came out in 2001 or 2002. Um, I can't remember the author's name. It's Eric something or other, uh, which is another good book where you know he did an experiment on basically Amish living. It's all about resisting technology, and mm-hmm. he and his young bride went and lived out and and uh, in a an Amish adjacent community and uh, did farming. And they did it from a Roman Catholic uh, perspective mm-hmm. to kind of return to nature. Um, and so I think there is an element of that. I think there are uh, a growing number of Christians that, that kind of feel adrift in the, the modernist uh, industrial world um, that, that feel called to that. But I don't know that that you know, I, I don't think agrarianism is the the pinnacle of Christian stewardship. I think it's a good example of that, and that we can do that to the glory of God. But that ultimately, uh, that many of us are going to be called to be knowledge workers and and to do other things uh, that don't, you know, get us into the uh, into the dirt on a daily basis. How can churches um, how can churches champion uh, creation care without um and I know how they can do it without damaging their theology because I think that, mm-hmm. that that's easy. But I don't think that most churches, especially those who are more conservative, know how to do it in practice. Um, I mean, I can't even think of a conservative church that would put Happy Earth Day on their church sign. <laughs> you know? I just I just don't think that we're thinking in those kinds of terms. So what can most uh, evangelical churches do? to um to promote the idea that creation mm-hmm. care is important without um and maybe you can't do it without being branded uh in something that you'd rather not have as a label but what are some things churches might consider doing that can uh, promote creation care whether they call it that or not that's a good question so i think that localism is a is a huge part of this um, because when you look at political divisions and and even theological division, divisions, they tend to um, they, they're, they're, especially the theological divisions are vitally important, and we don't want to mingle and and mislead people there. But you can work with people that are uh, of distinctly different uh, viewpoints than you on a very local level, and mm-hmm. uh, and cooperate in in very present needs in ways that doesn't confuse people about what your mission is. Mm. And so local congregations, I think, are best served by looking for opportunities to do uh, do things like um, participate. Like locally, we have a river cleanup project that happens every year. We'll see if it happens this year because of the, yeah, uh, really. the quarantine. But uh, that that we we participate in and and that this year I was going to coordinate a a group from church not that this is part of our core mission but that we as as members of the community are looking out for the common good of the community um and so those are ways that we demonstrate you know that we can demonstrate that hey this is an important piece of our witness too just like working at the food bank is uh, we care about our community. We love our neighbors. And one of the ways we do this is by making sure that the water that flows into Lake Erie uh, doesn't have trash mm-hmm. in it. Um, and so, you know, and it, it, other people's context is going to be different. So it could be that, you know, there's a trail cleanup that can be something that your your congregation participates in. And the really interesting thing about that idea, I think, one of the, and one of the reasons I think that Christians need to be more engaged either individually or as local congregations in some of these issues is that when else do you have opportunity to work beside people who need to hear the gospel Mm -hmm. that you're going to have conversations with 
Uh, and so I've had some pretty interesting conversations with people while, you know, while we're hip deep in, uh, in river water, uh, <laughs> about why we're there. Right. And then all of, all of a sudden you get to explain, well, this is, you know, we, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm-hmm. And we also love our neighbor as ourselves. And so here I'm showing neighborhood. Uh, and so those, though it opens up the doors to gospel conversations, it, it breaks down some of the social barriers that exist, particularly, you know, with when you've got Baptist on your church sign, uh, you can be a scary monster. And so when you go out and you're engaging with people that are religiously and politically different in a neighborly fashion, th- these are people that have big questions about the world and haven't settled things. So to have those gateways for conversation open up, I think is critical. I think some other ways that churches can think about showing that creation matters is in the way that we structure our uh, our product usage, right? Are we Are we a throwaway church. Uh, one of the things my church does, we use many fewer paper products and uh, many more like mugs, mm-hmm. and we just commit to actually washing the mugs mm-hmm. as to, as opposed to using disposable styrofoam all the time. Um, if we build, you know, uh, solar power is becoming more and more inexpensive, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that is a good way to then, you know, it, it meets the long-term needs of the congregation uh, to provide power that we can use. And it also, if carbon's a concern for you, uh, that shows that you're concerned about that. And right. it's, it's in a way that's theologically consistent. You know, it's actually a pretty decent money decision these days. You just have to look out 25 years. And, cool. and it shows that we care. Yeah. Well, this is Marty Duran. You've been listening to my interview with Spence Spencer. And you are on, uh, so what's your blog's website? So it's at ethicsandculture.com. Dot com. Ethicsandculture.com. You post pretty regularly. You do a lot of book reviews too, right? That's right. That's my ministry to the church is I read books and write, write reviews. <laughs> That's awesome. And then on Twitter, you are, is it Spence underscore Spencer 01 or something like that? I'm at Spence Spencer 01. At Spence Spencer 01. Just ignore that underscore that I randomly threw in there. That's right. All right, Spence. Thank you so much, man. It's good to talk to you and um, Godspeed. All right. Thanks, Marty. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.